You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. Astounding Stories 19, July 1931. The Diamond Thunderbolt by H. Thompson Rich, Part 2. It was a story as dramatic and romantic as it was unscrupulous. Finding himself and the crew of the rocket marooned on the upper slopes of this mighty mountain, in the midst of an incalculable wealth, he had set about at once to capitalize their astounding discovery. First he had made certain adjustments to the mechanism of his apparatus, which fortunately had not been injured by its forced landing, and then he had taken off with specimens of the treasure, bringing the craft down this time with precision in the midst of his ancestral estates near Baku, in the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains. This vast property the Bolsheviks had not confiscated, partly because of its remoteness, no doubt, and partly because of the prince's services to the Soviet Republic. At any rate, it was here he had developed in secret the details of his amazing plot, a plot that had as its aim not only his own enrichment, but the rehabilitation of all the Russian nobles. Once they had heard his story of the diamond thunderbolt and seen the specimens he showed them, many had eagerly joined the plot, with the result that an international ring had been formed for disposal of the gems. His plans perfected, Prince Krasnov had then returned to Kinchinjunga with his rocket, since when the mysterious flood of those perfect diamonds into the jewel markets of the world had begun. So you see, my friends, he smiled, that is what you Americans would call my little game, a game your chance discovery has rather jeopardized, you must admit. Professor Prescott could well realize this, but at a glance from Stoddard he declined to admit it. A very ingenious game, he said, but where do the llamas figure in this? Surely they must know of the presence of this meteor within their kingdom. No doubt they do, the prince conceded. This is why they are so reluctant to have foreigners enter their domain. At one time, I am satisfied, they knew its exact location, and drew many of their own gems from that source. But in recent times the snow people have guarded their secret well. The llamas are as terrified of them as the natives, and with better reason. He did not mention what the reason was, but there was something ominous in his tone. But to get on with my story, friends, I am not telling you all this merely to satisfy your curiosity. I have what you call a motive in my madness. Madness was right, thought Stoddard. The man was dangerously, criminally mad. My motive is simply this, he went on. You have chanced upon my little nest egg, and consequently I have either to let you in on the deal, or... Krasnov paused, shrugged. But why talk of anything unpleasant when there is wealth enough here for all? What I propose briefly is that you join me. They knew it was coming, but they winced nevertheless. Oh, don't be premature, he exclaimed, a little nettled. Hear me out. What is good enough for me and my fellow nobles of Imperial Russia is surely good enough for poor underpaid professors of democratic America. Listen, friends, I am generous. Join me and we will make millionaires out of all of you. Every professor in your country shall be a little czar. 
It will be, to use the old phrase, a triumph of the intellect. Beyond a doubt, the man was mad, yet his madness was vast, dizzying. Though neither was tempted, they were both rendered speechless for a moment. It was like standing on a mountaintop and being shown the countries and the glories of the world. Like standing on the top of Kinchinjunga, thought Prescott. But you assume we are all Bolsheviks like yourself, we professors, he said, struggling for calm words. Bolsheviks, snorted the prince. I spit on them. You think I, a nobleman, am interested in the masses? Cattle. Swine. I plan only for the day when we who are worthy rule again. And this that I have told you is my plan. You can, as you Americans so coarsely say, either take it or leave it. Attention hung in the air as his words echoed into silence. The man had revealed himself. And suppose we leave it, asked the professor, restraining his irritation as best he could. What then? Then I am afraid, uh, unpleasant consequences would result, was the bland answer. Surely you realize that I could not let you and young Dr. Stoddard rejoin your expedition with this story to report. They realized it quite well. But suppose we agree not to report it, said Professor Prescott. Not to doubt your honesty of intention, replied Krasnov sharply. I would refuse to accept such an agreement. Then I see nothing else but to decline your kind proposal, said Stoddard, before the professor could formulate further words. What do you propose to do? Murder us? Nothing so personal, said the prince, with his sardonic smile. I shall merely turn you over to my little subjects. They no doubt will deal with you as your merits warrant. Whereupon he pressed a button under that elaborate teakwood table. The musical gong they had heard before sounded again, and the prince's two Cossack retainers reappeared. He addressed them briefly in Russian, adding to his guests, Adieu, friends. If you change your minds, you have only to speak. You will be understood, and I shall be gratified. And without further words, they were led from that ornate apartment. Taken back to the dazzling chamber under the meteor, they were turned over to the pygmies. A powwow resulted, but it was brief. The two captives were bound fast in a curious ceremonial pit near the center of the room. Then the midget horde withdrew, leaving them alone there under that eerie glow. Now what the devil will be the next step? queried Stoddard, when the last of the pygmies had gone. Professor Prescott considered for a moment before replying. I don't think there will be any next step, except our cremation, he said at length. Cremation, gasped his young friend. What do you mean, cremation? Another pause. Then, just this. Don't you see where we are? Right under the thunderbolt. Well? Well, what? Simple enough, Jack. The professor's tone was grave. When dawn comes and the rising sun strikes that, good God! Stoddard suddenly understood. Why, we'll be cooked alive, frizzled. It was only too true. Even now the pale rays of the moon 
concentrated by the myriad facets of that monumental diamond, were beginning to focus on them a warmth that was uncomfortable. And by morning... The two men crouched there silent, realizing their desperate plight. They must escape before the sun rose. But how? Studying their bonds, they discovered that they were of rawhide of some sort. Obviously from the hides of animals these strange people caught on the lower slopes somewhere. But though they strained and twisted, they could not stretch them, the leather evidently having been cured to a marvelous toughness in these high altitudes. Precious minutes ticked by as they struggled there, but they were unable to extricate themselves. But before the end of a half hour, Stoddard managed to free one arm, and reaching into his jacket, he drew forth a small, compact metal object, his cigarette lighter. Twirling the wheel while Professor Prescott held his breath, he succeeded in kindling a flame on its tiny wick. If only he could reach the thongs with it. If only he could burn them through and free himself and the professor before any of the pygmies re-entered that lethal chamber. Wrenching around now, he applied the flame to his left wrist, which was still bound. As the living fire touched his flesh, he winced with pain. But almost anything was better than the grisly fate that threatened. Slowly, a little at a time, he endured the torture, straining at each application to see if the thongs would yield. Here, let me try it once, called out Professor Prescott, as he cried aloud with the agony of the ordeal. No, I'll get it, Stoddard gritted his teeth, continued. There, I think my hand is free. He struggled. Yes, now wait. Replacing his cigarette lighter in his pocket, he drew his blistered wrist from its smoldering bonds, and struggled feverishly now to undo the lashes about his feet. Five minutes of that, and he suddenly flung them off and stood up. Now, now then, Professor, I'll have you loose in a jiffy. Bending over his fettered companion, he worked with frantic haste to untie the rawhide bonds. Another five minutes, and they were both free. Professor Prescott stood up and stretched. Thank God for small favors, he exclaimed. But you, Jack, you must be burned cruelly. Forget it. Stoddard was already wrapping a handkerchief around his wrist. Now, let's see about getting out of here. These little rats all seem to be asleep, and Lord knows where that maniac Krasnoff is. Perhaps we can make it. At any rate, we'll give them a run for their money. As he spoke, he drew his automatic. Silently, stealthily, they left that glittering chamber and proceeded down the cavern toward what seemed to be the entrance, guided by the remembrance of the way they had come. A hundred yards or more they made, seeing no sign of their captors, when suddenly a musical gong rang out. "'We've stepped on one of Krasnov's infernal signals,' cried Stoddard above the den." Now there'll be hell to pay. And hell to pay there was, almost instantly. For before they had taken ten more steps, the cavern ahead was full of small ghostly figures jabbering in their shrill voices. Indifferent now of what he did, their lives at stake, Stoddard blazed away with his automatic, sweeping it from side to side of the stony walls as he fired. 
as the shots crashed out the jabbers turned to shrieks of terror several of the pygmies fell the rest broke their ranks and shrank into the shadows run yelled stoddard slipping a new clip into his pistol the professor needed no invitation gathering his long legs he sped after the younger man and together they burst from the mouth of the cavern outside in the dazzle of moonlight they paused for an instant this way called stoddard racing toward that splintered arena they gained it and lunged across it to the shelving slope that reached upward to the narrow perilous ridge whence they had come as they proceeded the pygmy horde following with incredible swiftness stoddard wheeled and fired time and again and now his shots were answered by the reports of rifles krasnov and his cossacks he muttered well we'll give them our heels unless they hit us and russians are notoriously bad shots i understand panted the professor at any rate they reached the slope and struggled upward toward the ridge putting themselves presently out of range behind the jagged rocks that loomed on every side but just as they were congratulating themselves on their escape came a dull reverberating explosion and as they clung to their insecure footholds a volcano of snow and ice rose ahead thousands of tons of debris avalanched into the chasm below stunned deafened they looked around down in that pocket where the thunderbolt had so recently gleamed was one vast chaos and above where that razorback ridge had led across the intervening chasms to safety was a dazzling void to both came the same thought but stoddard expressed it first krasnov he's dynamited the ridge he gasped then we we'll never get back now echoed professor prescott no but they'll never get us here scant comfort though when we're pinioned here like a couple of birds with their wings clipped right but let's see let's figure we're better off than we were and what was it napoleon once said when you can't retreat advance so suppose we but listen stoddard heard it was the sound of rifle shots and looking down he saw a feverish activity surrounding the rocket myriads of the pygmies were swarming upon it while a handful of cossacks were holding them off something doing down there all right he muttered looks to me like why sure i've got it that madman has overshot himself for once he's buried their precious meteor in blowing up our ridge and they've turned on him i think you're right agreed professor prescott suppose we advance as you say it looks like a chance right said stoddard slowly cautiously they returned down the slope when within a hundred yards they knew they had sized up the situation correctly with frantic speed krasnov was supervising the shoveling out of his rocket from amid the debris was directing its loading while the free members of his crew held off the enraged natives who were obstructing them descending even more cautiously now they neared the scene of activity my plan is this to get aboard and find out where they're going said stoddard through shut teeth what do you say lead on said the professor 
so they continued down neared the resting place of that strange craft and under shelter of the moonlight shadows stole through the confused ranks surrounding it and crept aboard stowing themselves into the first likely niche that offered a narrow cubicle behind a flight of metal stairs they waited scarcely daring to breathe for fear of being discovered fifteen minutes passed a half hour when suddenly sounded a rasping of doors that told them the rocket was being sealed then came a roar as of some mighty blast beating down upon the frozen earth followed by a lifting rushing sensation and they were flung violently to the floor the pressure ceased in a moment however to be supplanted by a buoyant exhilarating sense of flight it increased and they judged that they must be traveling at great speed glancing at the luminous dial of his watch professor prescott saw that it was a quarter to ten well we're off he whispered and where would you guess are we headed i wouldn't guess stoddard whispered back from the way we're riding it might be mars we must be making hundreds of miles an hour or thousands who knows they crouched there in their cramped niche scarcely even whispering now as the tense minutes passed suddenly the motion changed they seemed to be dropping another moment or two and with a slight jar the rocket came to rest well we're here wherever it is said stoddard stirring yes undoubtedly the professor agreed and the next move i think we'll let them make that they were not long in doing so there came the sound of doors rasping open of footsteps echoing on metal stairs and corridors once a giant cossack passed within four feet of them but at length all was silent within the rocket now then suppose we have a look around said stoddard stepping out right agreed his companion following i'll admit i am mildly curious to know what corner of the earth we've been transported to they proceeded down the dim-lit corridor the way they had come descended a flight of stairs and headed along another corridor to pause suddenly and gasp with astonishment for through the door whence they had entered the rocket poured a flood of sunshine stoddard stared at it a moment incredulously and then glanced at his watch ten o'clock i make it he muttered am i crazy or what no i hardly think so smiled professor prescott recovering from his own surprise it is merely that we are in some part of the world quite a few thousand miles removed from india back on kinchinjunga it is still ten o'clock at night but here it is quite obviously daytime that must be the explanation stoddard agreed but it certainly gave me a start at first approaching the door followed by the professor he peered cautiously out to confront a desolate stretch of scrubby growth hemmed in by a background of rugged mountains now where the devil would you say we are he demanded gazing around perplexedly either in the united states or in mexico was the astonishing reply but how can you say that because it must be some place approximately twelve hours distant from india in time to judge from the sun which is not far past the meridian but why not australia for instance 
because Australia is too far. It would be three o'clock tomorrow morning there, since it is ten o'clock last night now in India. Stoddard pondered this a minute, then admitted its correctness. All right, then. Assuming that we are somewhere on the North American continent, the next thing is to give Krasnov the slip. Otherwise, it won't be big enough for all of us. And that, Professor Prescott conceded readily enough. But before making any further move, they looked over their surroundings carefully. To satisfy themselves, none of their late captors were in view. They are evidently somewhere on the other side of the rocket, Stoddard concluded at length. So let's make a break for it while we've got the chance. Lead the way, said the professor. Okay, here we go. And stepping through the door, they dropped to the ground and raced off under the glare of the burning sun toward the rugged mountains that loomed ahead. For a hundred yards or so, they were able to keep the rocket between themselves and the Russians, but soon the ground sloped up to such an extent that they realized they must be in full view. Dropping behind the scant shelter of a scraggly tree, they turned and glanced down, and there, beyond the rocket, they could now see a group of men standing around outside a small wooden shack, shouting and gesticulating in their direction. Damn it! They've seen us, muttered Stoddard. But why don't they come after us? queried Professor Prescott. The answer came even as he spoke, for out of the shack rushed the tall figure of the prince, in his hand a pair of binoculars which he raised to his eyes. Whether or not he spotted them, an instant later he turned and uttered a command, and two huge Cossacks sprang to the pursuit. There's nothing to do now but run for it, cried Stoddard, leaping to his feet. The professor followed, and they plunged on up the slope, bullets from their pursuers' pistols and the rifles of those below kicking up the dust around them. But either because the aim was bad or the targets difficult, they escaped unscathed. As for Stoddard, he wasted no time in firing back. Once we get in those mountains, we're safe, he gasped, as they struggled on. How are you, professor? All right? No holes in my skin so far, came the panting answer. Five desperate dodging minutes passed. Glancing over their shoulders, they saw that the heavy, stolid Cossacks were losing ground, and ahead, tauntingly near now, loomed a thickly wooded slope that meant the beginning of big timber and safety. Another five minutes, each second an hour, and they had gained it. But there was no pausing yet. They could hear the Cossacks crashing on like determined bloodhounds behind. No need to climb any more, exclaimed Stoddard, half breathless. We'll edge along, keep in the trees, and try to throw them off. The older man said nothing, merely gritted his teeth. This climb had told on him more than anything he had experienced on the cruel slopes of Kinchinjunga. As they struggled along now, Sometimes it seemed that they had thrown their pursuers off the trail, or completely outdistanced them. But always a moment later, they would hear again the crunch of the Cossacks' boots on the dry undergrowth. So the grim flight continued, mile after heart-tearing mile, and Stoddard was beginning to realize that the professor couldn't keep on much longer, had just about decided to stop and shoot it out with their pursuers, when suddenly there came a sound that brought new hope to him. "'Did you hear that?' he gasped. 
pausing. It sounded like a car, panted his companion. Right, and that means there must be a road through here somewhere. But where? Listen. Professor Prescott pointed to the left. The sound seems to be coming from over there. And sure enough, from the left came a wheezing grind of a car making a heavy grade. Near, too, decided Stoddard. Come on, let's go. We've got to head it off. It's our only hope, except... With relief, he shoved his automatic back into its holster and led the way in the direction of the now rapidly nearing car. A hundred yards they had made, up a slight rise, when there spread before them a rutted mountain road, and on it, in full view, was a laboring ford of ancient vintage. Over the wheel hovered a lanky, leathery native, and beside him sat a small, plump woman who looked as though she might be his wife. They were almost to the top of the hill when Stoddard hailed them. Say, he said, give us a ride, will you? We're lost. Keep on, Henry, he heard the woman urge. I don't like the looks of them. Americans. Well, thought Stoddard, they were in the United States anyway. That was something. And he didn't exactly blame the good woman for her suspicions. They must look pretty wild at that, with their two-day beards and tattered clothes. Sorry, spoke up Henry. Mrs. says no. She knows best. Besides, it ain't fur to Martin's Bluff. You can make it in an hour. But say, wait a minute. They were running along beside the wheezing car now. We've got to get there in a hurry. We'll pay you. Henry pricked up his ears at this, but his wife shook her head. Keep on, she urged. They may be bandits. Whereupon Stoddard drew his automatic, for there was no more time to argue. Stop, he commanded. You'll take us, understand? I'll pay you well. See? I was right, screamed the woman. Bandits! Bandits! Oh, Henry, save me! Wildly she clung to him as Stoddard mounted the running board. But before he could make another move, Professor Prescott gasped out, The Cossacks! Quick! And jumping down, he wheeled, to face the two leering Russians, not forty feet down the road. Pistols leveled, they were advancing stolidly. Stoddard half raised his own weapon, then turned to see if the car was within range of the return fire it would bring. It was, but not for long. With a furious chattering of bands, as Henry gave it the gas, the decrepit vehicle gained the top of the hill and disappeared from view down the far slope, and the last thing he saw of it was a dusty plate flapping under its tail light. It was a Texas license. Then, turning back, he lifted his automatic, but it was too late. The Cossacks were on them. In answer to a guttural command, he dropped the weapon and raised his hands, as the professor had already done. End of Section 9 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista